everyone. Welcome back to the Trail Life Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stoner. This is it. This is episode 100. Uh, so I wanted to say thank you very much to anyone who has listened into the episodes, subscribed to the podcast. I truly appreciate each and every one of you. Um, it's been a blast so far. Uh, really fun, time consuming, <laughs> um, more than I thought, but, uh, you know what, I'm having fun with it. I've got a chance to meet a lot of great individuals, heard a lot of great stories. So this is just the beginning, uh, for everything. So I really appreciate you guys. I hope you enjoy episode 100. Uh, I brought in a author, motivational speaker, consultant, endurance athlete, both triathlon and ultra running. We're going to talk about his journey into uh, the endurance category, his trail running experiences, and talk about his two books, uh, Cycle of Lives and Winning in the Middle of the Pack. Both books are very inspirational, kind of speak to uh, a really interesting segment of the endurance community, I feel, anyway. It was a great conversation. Again, I hope you guys really enjoy. Thank you once more. Let's keep doing it. Welcome to The Trail Life, David Richmond. Help me turn the turning. Well, help me get it right. I don't wanna hurt nobody. Well, I don't wanna fight. Well, offer me the peace of mind and let me. What's it like being a race director? Is that like the most stressful job in the world? You know, it's, I wouldn't say it's the most stressful in the world, but it definitely has its challenges sometimes. Uh, you know, when it, being a trail race director, having rain, like we've been having here in San Diego Oof. for the last two months, that's where the stress comes in, right? Like your permits are always one type of stress and getting that done, getting the, you know, getting all that stuff, the logistics ready. But when you get to the week of the event, and you're just dumping rain <laughs> outside. It, oh my God. Where are you adds, at right now? So my office is in Oceanside. So I'm okay. here in the San Diego, oh, North County area. Yeah. So uh, super close. Um, yeah. I'm in, uh, Sabre, I'm in Sabre Springs right now. And then I'll be, uh, you know where Sabre Springs is? That's uh, like where the 50, 56 and the 15 meet. Yeah. Right yeah. I was going to say it's right, right over there. Yeah. Close by, I guess. So you, you in San Diego now uh, and, in San Diego for the Ironman Oceanside event uh, this, yes. this weekend. So what? Uh, let's talk. Let's. I want to talk about that before we get into yeah. everything else. <laughs> You've done a ton of these, but what uh, have you done this one before? I have. I've done this one a couple of times. So I don't really keep track of the halves because I feel like you know it's like a training session or whatever. You know, I don't <laughs> tell, know. Tell, tell that to tell that to somebody who's thinking the halves are the worst. So <laughs> I think halves are the greatest thing in the world. It's it's like running a 50 miler, like 50 miler, like a hundred miler is so much harder than a 50 miler, right? Yeah. It, it an Ironman is so much harder than a half Ironman. Yeah. You know, so I feel like a half Ironman is just a training thing, but I've done this one a couple of times. I think the last one I did was like six or seven years ago, even. Okay. The last, last time I did this race was six or seven years ago. Well, I, I think the, the hardest part for me doing, at least doing this event this year would be the, the, the ocean, right? Open water swim is always, is always tough. And that kind of gets in people's minds. But I think when you have to deal in with how much 
rain we've had yep and all of the uh, all of the types of bacteria and contaminants that are yeah. in the ocean when they get when it all gets drummed up that just kind of weirds me out a little bit and i, I don't it know it weirds me I, out too i i and and by the way i fucking hate the cold i mean i hate being cold oh yeah i hate it i would like i've done half a dozen 50 milers in vegas in june and I'd rather do a 50 miler in 110 degree weather than a 50 miler in 40 degree weather, you know? Yeah. Yep. And, and so I'm odd like that. Like I would, I, I'm, I just hate being cold. So I, and the water in the bay there is so freezing cold. Yeah. Yeah. I hate well, it. it hasn't had a chance to warm up at all right now. It's no. it, literally, we have two days of nice weather and all of a sudden it rains for another three or four days in a row. And it's, it's so weird, but I, I, I guess the, when it comes to the swim aspect of it, I guess the silver lining with, with being an Oceanside is at least we're not down in Imperial beach. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, that I, would be terrible. And for anybody who's listening and who doesn't know where Imperial beach is and knows the, the background of that is anytime it rains, all of the Mexico runoff comes into Imperial beach waters. And it's, it becomes this just sewage water pretty much. And I, I, I wouldn't, I could feel bad for anybody who lives down there and it has, that's the water that they deal with, but it's uh, a <laughs> silver yeah. line. Like I said, silver lining to Oceanside right now, at least you. Silver line. And you know what, listen, the, the, the bike is beautiful. I love getting out yeah. on Camp Pendleton, you know, ever since they closed it down and it's a little tougher to get out there. So it's so beautiful. And yeah. you know, the run is, is always nice along the coast there. So, um, you know, I mean, I'm not going to complain. It's not like nobody's paying me to do this. So, you know, yeah, I mean, exactly. I'm the one that's paying to do it. So why am yeah, I going to exactly. complain? Well, it's, it's going to be nice on race day. You guys will have a good, a good day of raining. It'll yeah. actually be a great, like great temperatures for, for something like yeah. this. So yeah, it'll be awesome. Um, it'll be awesome. So what, what are we shooting for? What, what kind of time frame are we shooting for? I would have given you an answer to that, but the problem is I, 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 snuck away to Japan for 10 days, uh, about two weeks ago. Uh, and, um, <laughs> I have literally, I'm going into this with zero training. So, so my, my, my time expectations are only so that I have a couple of people, my wife's going to be there and friends are going to be there just so I can give them an, a, an idea, but I, you know, seven, seven hours ish or something, it's going to be slow. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not what's, doing this one. For speed. What's, uh, what's your, what, what's your breast and what's your worst? Like, what would you rather just be out running out cycling? Like what, what would you rather yeah. do as far as on, as far as on the, on the, in events like this, like uh, my best what's, what's relative, my yeah. best relative, uh, is a swim. I'm a fast swimmer. Oh, okay. um, and like I did a half last summer. I, I did the, I did the swim. It's a little cheating. Cause it was a little bit down the river up in, up in Oregon. But I, I did this swim in like 26 minutes or something. I mean, like some stupid quick amount. And then, uh, but the bike is probably my weakest. And then the run is, is like, I'm in the bottom half of the bike, but I'm in the top third of the run. So eventually I'm going to finish, you know, half, you know, top, top 25, top 35%, something like that of my age yeah. group. So you know? that, that interests me a little bit now, now that, now that you're saying the bike is your weakest point. Yeah. This comes from somebody who has done a bike across the country. Yeah. So <laughs> how does, how does that factor in if, if going, you know, going from, what was it? L LA to Florida, Florida to New York. Is that, is that right? I went LA to San Diego. 
Okay. And then zigzag my way up to Albuquerque. Okay. And then down through Texas. And then I hit um, the panhandle, turned right, went down to Tampa and then across Tampa to Orlando and then zigzagged up to New York. And I did it in just 45 days. So wow. I, I averaged uh, 120 miles a day, 41 out of 45 days. That was and, and bike is your weakest is your weakest part. I, w- I wish I were a faster biker. I'm just not a fast <laughs> biker, man. I wish I was fast, but I can't figure it out. Yeah. I, here's what I feel like. I feel like Jeff, that you, if you're going to be a good runner, you got to run a lot. Yeah. If you're going to be a good biker, you got to bike a lot, right? Swimming, you don't have to be. You don't have to swim a lot. I've probably, probably done five swims to prep for this half. Okay. And, and, but, but with biking, it just seems like, I feel like I, I can hang on to my running. Like I feel like I could lace up right now and run a 50 miles trail run and I'll figure a way through it. Yeah. Because right? I feel like it kind of sticks with you a little bit with biking though. I feel like it disappears a lot quicker. And I, I mean, I, I apply to people that have time to, to put it in 20 hours on the bike a week, but I just don't, I don't have the time to do that. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's tough. Like I, 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 I'm not personally interested in doing a triathlon like, and I, and that's just because I don't, I I like to swim, but swimming is not my biggest thing. I definitely am not a great cyclist whatsoever. And I'm a very slow runner. So for me, it's like, eh, maybe not, but I will say that I I have a ton of respect for triathletes. I mean, Mm -hmm. the, the amount of time that they put into their craft and to wanted to do an Ironman or half Ironman or hell, even an Olympic distance. Like it's, there's a lot of the, like you said, it goes into it. You have to be yeah, pretty disciplined to. in all three of those. And I, I, I fully respect the shit out of all, yeah, all it's, athletes. Cause it's, it, it's, it's, a task. It's, it's shocking how much training that I've done for, I've done 18 full Ironman. So how much training I've done for, for each one of those Ironmans and still how hard it is. Yeah. Right. Like, like I, I remember I did the Catalina uh, run three times, right. The 50 mile run three times. One time I trained a lot and I did it in nine hours, 45 minutes and some change. Yeah. Two years later, I didn't get a chance to train, but I had signed up for it with a buddy of mine and I did it and I did it in nine hours, 45 minutes and some change. I did it within 60 seconds of time. <laughs> And I thought like one was harder than the other, but it was still wasn't as hard as an Ironman. Yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't get any easier. Those Ironmans are hard. I yeah. I mean, pros that do like three or four or five a year or something. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, it's, it's just otherworldly. It's, it's gnarly. Speaking of, of Catalina, I, I want to go to that one because you, when was the last time you did the Catalina 50 mile? Uh, a while ago, I, I, maybe like 10 years ago. Okay. So they, they yeah. just held the, the Catalina event out there this mm-hmm. two weekends ago, I guess. Okay. And you want to talk about some gnarly muddy trails with some super like water hazard situations. I mean, it, it's a it's tough a, run. It is. It's a tough run on top of that. Uh, on to begin with, but mm-hmm. they added in like all the rain that they had. They had they couldn't even get the one of the aid stations out to the on course because the the truck got stuck. Oh Could, my! Couldn't goodness. do drop. Couldn't do drop bags. People were like, yep. it, people were literally running in mud up to their ankles and and above. And it was yep. And it was gnarly. Like I, 
I've been out there plenty of times just to hike a lot of those trails and, and to go and have to run that regularly and then add in all of that stuff has been, been crazy. That goes back to the stress of a race director is having to have that happen where you work get around a, those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. Work around those kind of things where your truck yeah. gets stuck in the middle of the trail. People Unbelievable. Gotta, people got to run around it. You can't get, yep. you can't get the aid station out there. So now people are mile, you know, 15, 16 without, without their electrolytes and water. And it's just like, okay, like, what do we do? So it's, so it kind of all circles back around to that, to your initial question, but. Yeah. Well, um, I feel like there's two kind of athletes when it comes to ultra endurance events, right? One kind of athlete says, well, the conditions don't really matter. Like if it's cold, if it's hot, if it's wet, if it's dry, if it's whatever, like there's, they're elite, right? And they're going to get through it no matter what. And really, it only comes down to their training and, you know, kind of how they overcame and yeah. their nutrition plan and whatever. Then you have the normal, like, not athlete, ultra-endurance athlete like me, who does get affected by weather and race conditions and whatever. And it just adds another factor because, we're, you know, we're not elite. We're not, like really good. We just like to do these things. So I remember I did Catalina one time where it rained for like the two weeks before. And then there was a heat spell for like the, the, the last several days before, and it caked the trail and it was like running on cement. Yeah. And I remember six or seven hours into it, my, my, I was just like, I, I, how am I going to finish this thing? Because it was like running on cement. I was it was so hard. And I just remember going, you know, I wish I were the kind of person that it didn't affect me, you know, like yeah. conditions don't affect you, but whatever. <laughs> I still finish. Um, so I, I, I want to get into a couple of the other ultras you've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause you've done a ton. You've, you've, you've done, uh, like I've already mentioned, you've done the ultra endurance, your bike ride across, across the country. You've done some really solid, uh, ultra marathons here as well, but mm-hmm. like, what's your, like, what's your backstory? So you're, you split time as you told me over emails and stuff, you split time between Vegas and San Diego area. Mm-hmm. Now, where, where are you from originally? And, and were you always into more of the ultra endurance category <laughs> when you're growing up or are you, you kind of just like, I, uh. I, I'm surprised at how many people I talk to that, that do ultra marathons and stuff that never were a huge athlete in high school or college. It was just kind of one of those things that they picked up. They found that they really enjoyed on some level, and then they've just kept on growing it from there. That's so funny because yeah, my story is not unique in that regard. So I was a stressed out, majorly stressed. I worked on wall street. I was running a $110 million business for, for major wall street firm. I was stressed out. I was a smoker, pack a day, pack and a half a day smoker for 20 years. I was in a horrible relationship. I was married to an abusive alcoholic and, and I was overweight and I was just like miserable, it was some like miserable existence. And through a number of different things that happened, um, I was kind of able to get out of that situation and kind of assess my life. And I looked in the mirror and I said, like, who are you? And, and I didn't know the answer to the question. And I'm like, I, I don't even know. Cause I, I feel like up until that point, I'd never cared about what I thought about myself. I'd only cared about what other people thought about me. Okay. And, and I was driven by trying to accomplish things. Cause that's what I had to do to get other people to like me, approve me or whatever. 
right? I never tried to do anything for myself. And I said, well, if you're going to start to do this, like, why don't you start to run? Because you can't smoke and run, right? True. I mean, maybe you can. Uh, you, yeah. <laughs> but you really can't. Can. <laughs> so I went and bought a pair of running shoes and I, and I tried to run down the block and I couldn't do it. I was 60 pounds overweight and I was quarter million cigarettes in, you know? And so that was in uh, uh, right before my kid's fifth birthday, they're twins. Um, and that was so in a February by the middle of February, I ran a mile by March. I did a 5k in April. I did a Olympic, uh, triathlon in July. I did a half Ironman and in November I did a full Ironman. So I went wow. from doing nothing to like full on in like complete, not addicted, but a drawn to right. what could I accomplish? And I said, well, geez, okay, now you're an athlete. So what is an athlete to you? And I said, well, to me, it's like, if I could roll out of bed one day and just put on my shoes and go run a marathon, I think I'll do that. Like that could be an athlete. Mm -hmm. And I did that. I did the LA marathon signing up for it on the Saturday before when you could sign up, you know, the day before. And, uh, and I'm like, wow. Okay. So I finished that thing and I go, no, nah, I don't think that's it. I think what would make you an athlete is if you rolled out of the rack one day and, and put on your shoes and you could go run 50 miles without any specific training. And so I knew I had done a 50 K up a Mount disappointment and I called up the race director and I said, Oh man, it's like Wednesday or Thursday. And you got the, the 50 milers on Saturday. Can I, can I get in? And he said, no, it's too late. And I said, come on, man, give me a break, whatever. He said, okay. So I decided on that Wednesday, that that Saturday I was going to run 50 miles and I hadn't done any training. And so I figured, Hey, if I could do it, I hurt, it hurt. Cause there's a hundred degrees and, and it was, it was brutal. It was, it's held in August and you know where that is, you know, you know, that race it's, it's a brutal one. Um, and, uh, and so I did that. So I went from kind of nothing to just not finding what my limits were um, and being really drawn to what could I accomplish? So I'm, I'm more like in the camp of the people who like just discovered it and said, okay, well, let's, let's see what this world has to offer me. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing what, once people set their minds to something they'll Right. And they try to, you know, they're starting to figure out like what really excites them and, and get something mm -hmm. to do something like it's you talk about couch to 5k. Well, couch to 50k or 50 miles, <laughs> this is yeah. pretty much what you're doing. And it's, it's quite amazing. Like, and I, there's one of the, the one things I wanted to ask you about that was in your bio, you did the Tahoe rim trail 100 miler. Yeah. And you said there was a great story, not a great memory with that. And I wanted to ask you about that. What oh, those, are, those, are, those always seem to like, because yeah, one of the things I always like to ask is what's your, what's your best memory or what's your greatest memory. Right. And sometimes I, it's pretty much split 50, 50, like, Oh my God, this is the worst, worst story that you're going to get when the trail run, or this is the greatest yep. experience that I ever had. So it's for you to say, it's a great story, but not a great memory. I'm like, okay, I gotta, I gotta hear this now. That's so funny. So I, I, uh, so I had no business trying to do a hundred miler. Right. Cause I was not, I was not in a hundred mile run shape and, and I had never, I've done a few fifties, but I've never done anything longer than a 50. And my first hunter was going to be the Tahoe rim trail. And that one has, you know, 50 degree swings in temperature. Yeah. And I don't know what 
16,000 feet of climbing or some stupid nonsense like that. Right. It's a, it's a really, really crazy race and having like, I'm smart, but I'm not like really smart. So <laughs> I, I didn't, I like certain things that are just obvious. I just didn't figure out. So I went, I went up there and I, and I thought I was prepared and whatever, but about like mile 10, uh, we were running through a Creek and I remember people were sitting down and taking off their shoes and socks and, and then, and then get to run across the Creek. And I'm like, why the hell are they doing that? I guess I'm pretty stupid. <laughs> and then, uh, so I, I ran through the Creek and of course, uh, yeah, I understood why they took the shoes and socks off before they ran through the Creek. So at mile 20 or 21, I had a, uh, there was an aid station. And by then my foot was, I had a blister on my, on my toe. I could tell that was really pretty hot. Like, I'm like, this is pretty hot. So I stopped and I, I took off my shoe and the, the doctor came over and he looked at my bottom of my foot and he went, oh, hell no. And he handed me a pair of scissors and he says, you cut that jelly bean off. I'm not touching it. Because I had dug a hole the size of a jelly bean in my little toe from a blister that just, I just kept running on and running. I, it didn't even occur to me that I was, but I had a, a piece of skin the size of a jelly bean. And he goes, I ain't cutting that off. So I said, all right, well, whatever. I cut it off. And I wrapped my foot up and I started running again. And six or eight miles later, I'm feeling okay. So I'm dying. This is good. So I finished the first loop, 50 miles. And I'm like, all right, I, this is good. I'm going to be able to do the second 50 miles. This is pretty awesome, but I could use a nap. So I took like a 15 minute nap, put on some, some, some soup or whatever. And I started to run and my foot about mile 56 started to hurt. And when I say it started to hurt, it it's literally like somebody took a hatchet to my toe and cut it off. Like <laughs> I, I had two options. Okay. And I'm not even ex exaggerating, Jeff. I had literally had two options. I could go six miles back down to 50 because I, I there's no way I could continue to run. I would have to walk six miles. <laughs> or I could walk the three miles to at the aid station at mile 50, 59 or 60. Yeah, mile 60. And I said, well, either way, I'm going to go four miles up or I'm going to go six miles down. I think four miles up is going to be better. And as I'm contemplating thinking about it, the pain was getting worse and worse and worse. It's starting to get dark and cold. And I'm not exaggerating when I tell you it took me four and a half hours to go those four miles. Oh, my God. Because I, I, I was crawling. I was crying like a little baby. My foot hurt so bad that I would like take a step and then I'd stop. And the pain was just, oh, I just couldn't handle it. And I'm like, oh my God, this hurts so much. And then I'd get the nerve to take another step. It took me four and a half hours to go four miles. And then I DNF'd it at, at, at that age station. But I'm like, and I'm telling a buddy of that story. And he's like, thanks, you, you ruined it for me. I'm never going to be able to eat jelly beans ever again. <laughs> so every year, every year I send him a box of jelly bellies. And I'm like, here you go, buddy. <laughs> he's like, I don't eat it. I give it to my kids, dude. I can't eat a jelly bean ever again. Yeah. And I bet you that's the last time that you ever ran through the, through a Creek on a, but I'm just dumb, right? I'm just dumb. <laughs> well, but that's the things that <clears throat> those are things that you learn as you, as you go about doing the ultra races. I mean, that's, the, I think that's the beauty of, of the ultra category in from the trail perspective versus a road, right? Like those are things that you just, 
you take in stride and you experience and mm-hmm. you can kind of laugh about later on. And you kind of know that that's, that's part of the, of the sport when yeah, so many people that I've talked to that have done like the 200 mile races and stuff, that's the feet are the first thing that, that go. And it's like the blister stories that you hear, you know, I've, I've talked to somebody who pretty much had their, had to peel off the whole entire bottom of their foot with a, like a full on the blister from, uh, base of the toes all the way to like arch like mid arch they've had to like peel everything off and i'm like yeah that definitely is not something that hey i ever want to see again i've seen photos no. of it and it's just like i don't ever want to see that again but be that that teaches you right away exactly what to do and what not to do and when, when it comes to you know foot care yep. and where where to be smart as you, as you said about taking shoes off across the creeks and all that stuff so it's it's yeah and that's that's, that's the beauty of trail running I, that, I, that jacked me up for jeff that jacked me up for about five years because uh every time i did any kind of race a running race that was more than say 10 miles or so road uh uh trail ironmans half ironmans you name it uh, that toe was just completely jacked. It, it would, it would, it would be a massive blister, start bleeding, and and I would hobble my way in. And I tried every kind of remedy you could imagine, and then finally, I found the right kind of expert who said, "Yeah, won't you try a shoe with a bigger toe box?" And I'm like, "Bro, what?" And I've never had a blister ever since. And I'm like, see, I was an idiot for five years beyond that one little creek <laughs> run. You know, so the lessons we learn. Yeah, a hundred percent. So I, I want to talk about uh, speaking of lessons you learn. I mm-hmm. want to talk about the two books you've got out right mm-hmm. now. Um, one first one was written back in 2019. It's winning in the middle of the pack, which mm-hmm. I, I find very interesting and I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but just reading the synopsis of the book, I, I found it quite intriguing because I thought that that kind of fit into the endurance athlete, I thought mm-hmm. really, really well. And it's all about, and as you had kind of said, trying to figure out what it was to be an athlete or success of an athlete. And it's, and correct me if I'm wrong, please. It's taking charge of pretty much taking charge of what you as an athlete individually feels success is right. Versus mm-hmm. what somebody else feels is a success and, yeah. and, pretty much appeasing them is that kind of you know you hit it right right on the head and i don't know if this resonates with everyone but it resonates with me that like i grew up in a household where i I had to worry every single minute about what was going to happen if i didn't please my parents right and who knew what it took to please them right because you just never knew and so you know you do things to make the teacher happy to make your spouse happy to make the employer happy to do whatever and and you you you're you measure your worth and your you know your 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 you know opinion of yourself based on what you think other people are thinking or what right and 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 i don't know that resonates with anybody it was the way i grew up in my life okay and when I finally said, well, geez, what about the guy in the mirror? Does he matter? Then that changed the whole perspective. And 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 where it hit me, and I'll, I'll explain where the middle of the pack comes from, where it hit me was when I did my first half Ironman. So I'm doing my first half Ironman up in up in uh, uh, Central California. I did, it was the Vineman, the Vineman half Ironman. I'd never swam 
biked or run any of those distances. I had no business up there. I was only five or six months away from having smoked. I was probably still 30 pounds overweight or something. And I didn't belong there. And I knew I didn't belong there. And so I go up and I'm sure you've, everybody can relate to this, that you, you, you get to the start line and, and the start line was a rolling start. So I get to hang out and watch all the people. And I'm like, why is literally everybody chiseled out of stone? Like what the hell, yeah. man? Like what, these are freaking athletes. They're all in their speedos and they're, you know, they're, they're, there's an ounce of fat between all of them. And here I am seeing myself with this, this older fat, stupid guy that's here doing this thing. And I go, I don't belong here, man. Like what the hell, like, what am I even doing here? And I almost left. I almost turned around, went home and go, I'm not, I don't belong here. This is not me. And then the gun went off and like 90% on that first wave of athletes went swimming and they were swimming. And then I look back at the start and I'm like, the hell's that? Like there's a dude on his back, you know, doggy paddling backwards. There's another guy swimming in circles and there's somebody walking to the edge of the river. It's in a river. They're walking to the edge of the river so they don't have to swim. And I'm like, well, hell, they don't even care about what people are thinking. Why the hell do I care? They don't yeah. like why nobody's watching me. Nobody's nobody cares about me. Nobody's watching me. I'm uh, nobody paid you to be here. Nobody's paying attention. It's just you. And I thought, man, that's kind of cool. Like, so it only matters what I think, or it only matters the effort that I put in, or it only matters how I end up feeling about myself. Cause nobody else cares. They don't seem to mind. And I'm like, wow, that's kind of empowering. So the middle of the pack idea is like, listen, man, if Oprah Winfrey were going to go do the Oceanside half, everybody's going to see what her time is. Right. And certainly I'm curious to see the person that makes it at the very end, like just under the cutoff. I want to see like who's got the guts to make it that hard against whatever odds they're going against. Mm -hmm. But everybody else, nobody's watching. man. They're just there for themselves. Yeah. And I love I love that idea. So that's what winning in the middle of the pack is. And I wrote this book that kind of combines life business and endurance athletics lessons to see what the parallels are like knowing when to quit knowing when not to quit and how to set high enough goals and those kind of things and i tell a story from my days on wall street and what i learned in doing endurance athletics so to kind of tie some of those themes together of how you should be more worried about what you think than what anybody else thinks yeah it's quite interesting you know from from the the scenario that we live in today, or like the media channels, right? Like social media, right? You you go on social media, and depending on what rabbit hole you get stuck down in, mm-hmm. you you're into the you you see all these fitness influencers and everything else that are all like you said chiseled out and mm-hmm. in shape and everything, and that's kind of the way that you almost are. Oh, like I I am not going to be a successful athlete or. An, a healthy individual until I reach that point. Right. And that's where I think this book is really interesting is the fact that you have to get out of your head and just put away like, okay, I, I, not everybody's going to look like this. Not everybody's going to be an athlete like that. And you've got to do it for yourself. And I think that in today's society, I think that's a huge, you know, talking point as far as like from the mental and, and physical health aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah, the very first sprint triathlon I did was up in Oxnard. And this is back when they used to write your name, your age on your calf. Okay. I don't think they do that in most races anymore. And I'm doing this 11 mile bike ride. (laughs) This is 
five weeks after I quit smoking, six weeks after I quit smoking. And all of a sudden this lady goes by me and she's 64 years old and she's leaving me in the dust. And I'm thinking like, like what the hell, man? Like what kind of loser am I? And then I thought to myself like later on and reflecting on it is I'm not a loser because a 64 year old woman is biking faster than a 40 year old dude. I'm doing the best I can do. I'm sure she's doing the best she can do. How awesome is it that she's doing the best that she can do? Yeah. Right. I, I stopped, I had to learn how to stop comparing myself and the founder of Ironman, one of the founding uh, guys of Ironman said it really beautifully. And I've quoted him a million times in my head uh, or to others, even when raising my kids, I was, I, I would pull out this quote all the time. And, and it was, he goes, Iron Man's really hard. Like you're going to want to quit a thousand times. It's kind of like life, right? You want to quit a thousand times. He goes, and if you do, nobody's going to care, but you're always going to know. Yeah. And I love that. Nobody's going to care, but you're always going to know. Well, isn't that nice to be that important? You know, that, that, that you, you're always going to know, like, so it should matter to you. And that, that, that was a rewiring of my brain. You know, how nice is it that to know that really nobody cares, man, they're just doing the best they can do. They're just trying to live their lives. They're just worried about their own self. So isn't that yeah. great? Yeah. Right. Well, and that's, and that's the thing is like you, you go into these events or into a gym and nobody really gives a flying shit to be honest with you. Like what, what you look like or whatever, like or how, or how, what you're there to do, like yeah. or how you're there to like, okay, what's your time going to be like, honestly, when it's all said and done, people are just there to just do what they need to do to be successful in their own mind. And, and so that's kind of one of those things. Again, I think it's a huge conversation point as far as the society that we live in today mm -hmm. and, and how that resonates. So um, it's cool. I, I'm actually quite interested to excited to, to hear or listen to read the book um, from that perspective. So um, yeah, thanks. It's, it's a good book. I, re I really enjoyed it because I think it resonates with at least with people that can identify with that idea of, yeah, I kind of lived a lot of my life trying to impress others or try to being worried more about what they thought about me than what I yeah. should think about me, which yeah. it, that just resonates with me, you know? Yeah. Um, and your other book the it's called cycle of lives, 15 mm -hmm. people's stories, 5,000 miles and a journey through the emotional chaos of cancer. Yeah. I, I referenced your LA to New York bike ride. Yeah. Am I correct in saying this is that ride kind of spawned this book? Is that the way I, 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 I realized the, the it? book it, uh, spawned the ride? Oh, it did. Okay. So I have a verse. Strangely okay. enough. Okay. So what happened was when I, I mentioned to you, like this day that I looked in the mirror and said, like, like, dude, deal with your own crap and, mm -hmm. and, and figure out who you're going to be. Um, and I literally had a conversation with myself in front of the mirror, looking like an idiot, I'm sure saying like, who are you? And I didn't know any answers. Well, all, all of a sudden I see this endless, beautiful, long road ahead of me of discovery. But at that same time, um, my sister, who I was super close to in age, and also we were very close, um, she got diagnosed with terminal brain cancer, and her road at that particular time was leading to her death. My road was leading to discovery. And I kind of um, really made me pay attention to what she was going through in absolute terms, but also in relation to how lucky I was to be going through what I was going through. And I, I so I really paid attention. And when I noticed 
um, people interacting with her, whether it was her kids, you know, she had young kids, a great husband, great circle of friends, caregivers, doctors, really great. But when it came to the emotional side of what she was going through, people had a difficult time talking. They could deal with the tasks. How do you find a better doctor? How do you get your kids looked at while you're while you're mm-hmm. going through chemo? You know, how do you eat better? How do you sleep better? These kind of things they could deal with. But when it came to the emotional side of trauma, it's really easy for us to kind of like stiff arm people. Like, you know, you who doesn't who doesn't have a person that they walked by at work and you go, I know they're having a tough day. All right, I'll ask. You know, hey Jeff, what's going on? And you're like, oh, dude, man, I just found out like my uncle just died, and I'm like, oh, sorry. Yeah. And I asked it, right? Because I don't know what the hell to say. Yeah, exactly. So um, that was a recurring theme that I was seeing over and over and over again. And I tried to figure out why. So I, not to give answers, but just to understand the why a little bit more. Why why is it so hard to have those hard conversations around trauma? And so I found a a group of people, uh, doctors, patients, loved ones, survivors, caregivers, medical professionals, everybody, uh, different ages, different types of cancer that they had dealt with or had, had cared for or whatever, um, different times in their life that they had it one time and done five times the whole life, blah, 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 so that I could get a 360 view. And then I said, in relation to the traumas in your life, how did those traumas affect your ability or your inability to form a connection. So when you're walking by the, by Jeff and, the, and and he's got a funny look on his face and you're like, Hey Jeff, what the heck's going on? And you go, dude, I just found out my uncle died. You might have a little more insight into how to approach a conversation with them about, about what they might be going through because don't we all in life really just want deeper, more authentic, more connective uh, uh, um, experiences with the people in our lives and not everyone, but with the important people in our lives. And I think we do. And so I found all these people. I interviewed them, Jeff, for like a couple of years. So I was on the phone with them for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours and really delving super deep into their experiences, which were just fascinating. And then wrote the book to say, Hey, here's, when you ask the question, what are people going through or what have they gone through? This is a little insight into that. And I thought if we're all connected by story and we're trying to connect to everybody's trauma and understand how to have these, these deep connecting authentic relationships, well, what better way to connect the stories than to get on my bike and go visit all the people I've been talking to. Oh, so that's cool. So that's why I zigzagged and connected them. So, so the yeah. book is those 15 stories. And then the, t- the, the thread that binds the stories together is the zigzagging line of oh, my okay. narrative going to each person and, and kind of a little backstory of uh, a tiny little bit of narrative about the bike ride and people I met along the way and right. that kind of stuff. Well, that makes the book even more intriguing now. I, I, was, yeah. <laughs> I hear, I didn't know it was kind of one of those things. Like I said, I thought one spawned the other, but it's, it, uh, it's quite an interesting way to, to connect and it gives you kind of that connection point on a deeper level as well for yourself, as far as making that journey from mm-hmm. person to person and stuff. Like, was there yeah. any, did you like with everybody that you talked to, was there any one or two points that were, that you kind of saw across the board that, you know, mm-hmm. people, how, how people, re, how, how people reacted to certain situations and so like that, did you find anything or was it a hundred percent like unique and, indiv- and individualized? Uh, great, great way to ask the question because the, the, the thing that was very different was everybody had different emotional responses 
both positive and negative. So I asked everybody, what's their number one overriding positive and what's their one overriding negative emotion from this trauma of cancer or dealing as an oncologist with people with cancer for 40 years or something. And those emotional responses are very, very different. Uh, what were the traumas they experienced in young adulthood and adolescence and childhood? Very, 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 very different. But what the similarities were was one, how absolutely fascinating their lives were, although they were just normal human beings like you and me, but they came into it saying, I don't know why we're talking. My life's not that interesting. Yeah. And I thought, you know, it's so poignant that everybody's just trying to live their lives. Right. And when you find out when you are given an opportunity to find out what the hell people have gone through or what they're going through, mm -hmm. you just can be unbelievably blown away. You have no idea what people are dealing with and they kind of have no idea what you're dealing with. Right. And that to me, I find, I, I found super fascinating. So that was one thing that was similar was everybody's just trying to do the best they could. Sometimes yeah. their best was terrible. Sometimes their best was amazing. Their own life thinking my life's not special. I'm just trying to live it. Yeah. But the second thing that was really why I wanted to write the book. It just became more apparent. The more people I spoke to was that everybody could uh, identify at some level with how isolating um, going through trauma is, how on an emotional level, how often they were abandoned or how often they were uh, avoided by people, even very people are very close to them because we just don't know what to say. We don't know how to talk to people about yeah. what they're going through. And I could bore you with story after story after story after story that has that even at a very deep level with people, you know, that, that uh, somebody was married for 40 years and she was telling me things like, she's like, yeah, I've never really ever talked to my husband about it because, you know, these are things that uh, I never talked to my coworkers because then I, I go, what about your peers? You ever talk to other doctors about where you're going? She goes, I'm a woman doctor, dude. I can bring emotion into it. And I'm like, yeah. whoa. Like I was just blown away by the amount of isolation and desperation she felt uh, with one aspect of her story that she had never explored before. And I'm like, man, why don't we have these ability to connect about these emotional things? And, yeah. and I think by telling the stories, Jeff, in the way that I did with people revealing the absolute truth of the depths of their emotion and trauma and that type of stuff, it just does kind of answer that question. Like, what are people going through and how can I better relate to them? Yeah. Did you, like, from, a, like you said, it's, it's hard for people to talk about a lot of different aspects of their life. Like, uh, to me, I think it would be really hard and trying to break that wall down and to some degree, like what was your experience mm -hmm. with, with some of the people as far as getting them to break that wall down? I mean, how, cause you talked about, you did it for two, you were talking to these people for two years. Like yeah, did some people, I, I've assumed that some people just were like, blah, you know, and they came yeah. out and, and said a lot of things right away where it's, yeah. where some people were just like, um, I'm just going to, I'll tell you this one little thing. And then yeah. six months down the road, you're collecting some stuff. Did you like, what was your, what was your experience as far as trying to break that wall down for everybody? Cause you said, yeah, people, thanks people, for, want, people want the, the deeper connection, but it's hard for people to it's open hard. Up. Yeah. It's hard. And also uh, Jeff, especially when it comes to trauma, we have this inside voice that deals with things 
like in a different way. And we often don't talk about them even to people that are closest to us. And we start to, we hear it in a different way. And it's like, Oh my God, it becomes a little bit more real. And uh, it's very easy. The longer you keep, the longer you develop the tools that allow you to store away trauma, stress, bad uh, memories, you know, bad experiences, the better we get at making sure that those stay deep and secure and locked up and hidden. And once you start to explore them, uh, if you're if you're able to go there, it can be uh, unbelievably revealing, right? Because you have no idea how you talk about it because you've only thought about it. Those voices are very different. So like you said, some people were like, boom, man, just expel it. And we were, it was awesome. It was so awesome. <laughs> and some people, I mean, I, I remember one story in particular, um, I won't get into all the details, but I just wasn't believing everything that the guy was telling me, you know? And I'm like, man, there's more, there's, there's more. You're not telling me everything, dude. You're just not. And I go, I go, it's okay if you don't want to, but I'm, I'm trying to get to the heart of the matter here. And you're not telling me what's causing these issues. And we're going back and forth and back and forth. And finally he goes, all right, I'll tell you. And I'm like, what? And he said, when I was six years old, I came home from school, I was dropped off and I walked upstairs to check on my mom and she was killing herself. Oh, Jesus. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, are you literally kidding me? Whoa. And, and I'm like, where do we even go from here? Like that is, that's the ultimate starting point for everything he had gone through as a young Latino going through cancer, not willing to accept help from anybody, not in fact, allowing anybody to know what he was going through. And he should have died through the cancer that he went through. He had a 0.01% chance of making it through 5,000 hours of treatment and procedures and surgeries and whatever. And he's fine now. He made it through, but he didn't accept an ounce of help throughout it. Because the one time that he allowed somebody in to give him help was his girlfriend. And she went, what? Hell no, that's not my life. I'm out of here. Wow. So only in his life had he ever known the most horrible abandonment. Yeah. The most horrible, you don't deserve anybody to care about you enough to stick around. Right. And 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 he had to hear himself talk about this. And he, he, he's since sought uh, a professional help. I, I'm not a therapist or anything. We, we're just friends. We're very, very good friends now. But um, he's dealt with that. He's, he's employed the tools from a professional to help him deal with these type of things. But he's turned into a guy who still is macho. He's still proud of, of, of his manliness. He's still proud of what he's accomplished in life, but he understands that, that um, he never was able to ask for help because of fear of abandonment. And, 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 and made me think like how many times in my life, Jeff, have I asked somebody, Hey, what's going on? Or I knew they needed help. And I go, can I help you? And they go, no, I'm fine. I'm, I, it's really nothing. Like how many times could that have been something that was way, way way worse than they would have ever allowed me the chance to know. It is quite interesting to me that, that, that uh, it's some of the stories that people will hold back or want to talk about, but it's all, it, man, it's that, and that's, that's the whole entire thing on the mental, on mental health is, you know, 
and you know, right now going on, people just are either are not opening up enough or they're opening up and people they're trying to open up and people just won't listen. Right. Or like, like his girlfriend was like, Nope, I'm, I'm out. I, I I'm out. It's not my life. I, it's not my life. I can't deal with it. So it's man. Dude, abandonment's a big deal. I, there was another book participant I spoke to that her, her story was hard to write because on her way to check herself in for her first uh, uh, therapy for, for, for cancer, her, her fiance called her up and said, yeah, I'm actually not going to be able to meet you at the hospital. Cause I got somebody else pregnant. I'm going to stick with her on her way to pre-check. So she goes through, she, she survives this cancer that she shouldn't have survived. And then 10 years later, it comes back. Everybody in her support group died. It's a very serious type of cancer. Came back. She, she gets ready to go in again. <clears throat> the boyfriend who's, who's going to take care of her goes, yeah, I'm not strong like you. I can't do it. I'm out. Like abandonment is such a big deal. Abandonment at your most vulnerable times is even just exponentially so much worse, but there wasn't a person that didn't experience some amount of abandonment, excuse me, some amount of being isolated, some amount of people avoiding them, keeping their distance. So they're forced to go through these things alone. Oftentimes wondering why don't people have more compassion for what I'm going through? Why are they leaving me alone? Why are they avoiding me? Why won't they talk to me? That's what's going on. And it's tough. It's tough. Man. Well, I, it's, it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm intrigued. Again, this is after talking to you a little bit further and, and reading some of the, the synopsis of the, of the story, it's, it's quite interesting. And I, I definitely would like to read this and it kind of comes back to me. Like I, I just lost my aunt last week from cancer Ugh. and it's, it, I mean, she, she's been, she's in a better place at this point. Like she had like, uh, ended up with cancer that went all the way up her spine into her brain. And it was, yeah, she was going through a lot of pain and, and it's kind of one of those things where, uh, you know, family and my uncle was never really good about talking about stuff like this. And it kind of, it kind of forced him to have some of these conversations with what was going on and, and everything else. And, you know, I had, and he, they live in Florida and I don't really get a chance to talk to them very often, but he sat down with me and had a two hour conversation out of the blue, just because he needed to unload and talk to somebody about it. And it was interesting, his story and what was going on with their life that, you know, I had no idea and stuff. So it's mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. when I was kind of learning a little bit more about that book, I was like, shit, this kind of like resonates real quick with what's, what's kind of gone on with, with my family in the last couple of weeks. But um, yeah, I, I, I'm quite interested and I, you know, encourage anybody who's listening to this, that has kind of that same kind of story that's going on or hard to, hard to talk to people about, or want to ask those questions, you know, take a look at the book and, and maybe that'll mm-hmm. give them some inspiration as far as how to talk to their friends or family about some of this stuff or, and, uh, and help open up those conversations. But yeah, thanks. I, I think it can. And, you know, like I know the old me, should I put myself in your, in your shoes for a minute, just on what little you told me, the old me would be afraid to call up my uncle and go, how you doing? Right. Because the old me would go, well, how do you think he's doing? He freaking lost his wife. He's been through the emotional ringer. Like, could you imagine what he might be going through? What a stupid question. How are you doing? Yeah. The new me 
knows that that's probably something I better do because otherwise he's going to wonder, you know, why isn't somebody calling me and asking me how I'm doing, man? Uh, exactly. And that's kind of the way it's I felt. Tough. I was like, do you, because when it's, you know, when it's family, you expect family to call and ask, but at the same time, like you never really, like you're just assuming. Right. And it's like, you know, so I haven't, I haven't spoken to him much. I better call and, and make sure that he knows that, you know, my wife and I are thinking of him and, and I, you know, how his kids are doing and stuff. So it's, I, I, I'm in agreement with you. I think it's, yeah. it's kind of one of those things that, that uh, you can't really assume that they're, they're having those conversations with somebody. You might as well just ask them. Yeah. You know, one of the book participants, the first story in the book is a, is a guy named Bobby. I won't get into his story, but I was talking to him one time and, and his dad had lost his best friend re- very recently. Mm-hmm. And no, I'm sorry. His best friend's wife had died. And, and this was his, his dad's best friend from childhood. And so when Bobby was talking to his dad, he was like, Hey, how's so-and-so doing, you know, since the wife died, he goes, I don't know. I haven't, I haven't been able to call him. And he's like, what? Mm. How could you not call him? And he goes, dude, I mean, he lost his wife. They were married for 50 years. What am I going to do? And he goes, call him up and ask him how the Dodgers are going to do. I'll ask him what the weather's like. like, like ask him what he had for dinner, just call him. And he's like, He's sitting there thinking, my best friend's abandoning me because he doesn't know what to say. What the hell? What the hell's that? Yeah. So his dad called up his friend and said, hey, you know, did you watch the Dodger game last night? And he's like, nah, I didn't get the chance, but thanks for calling and blah, 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 blah. And they start having this conversation like friends do. But you just yeah. want to go like, oh, I don't want to bother him. I don't want to say something stupid. His wife yeah. just died and I'm asking him about the Dodgers. Yeah. Do you know, it's a rough world to go in. And what I tried to do in the book, it's not prescriptive. It's not preachy at all. All it is, is these stories. And most of the stories have, have a very positive spin to them. Uh, inspirational spin, at least, is is not to answer the question, like, what do you do? But answer the question of what are people going through? And maybe you could try to understand that so that when you can relate to your uncle in a different way, right, you could go, or your aunt, rather. Right. And whomever, your brother, your sister, a coworker, whomever, you can relate to them a different way. And you go, you know, like, okay, I'm, I'm, I can learn something from this. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm hoping. Do uh, what I'll do in the show notes is I'll put a link to where you can purchase the books, mm-hmm. um, social media handles you've got that people want to outreach and ask questions or whatever. I'm, I'm happy to do that and stuff. But thanks. I, I truly appreciate you jumping on David and yeah. sharing, sharing your, your journey across, you know, trail running and, and other ultra endurance sports and, and just sharing stuff about the books. I think both books you've got are definitely eye opening and can help people kind of understand some stuff. And like I said, I'm excited to sit down and actually start reading them and learn a little cool. bit more, but, but yeah, thanks for doing that. Uh, two super quick things. The the second one, the Psycho Lives one, is Audible, and it's pretty awesome because uh, fifteen different actors do it. So I don't know about you, but I, oh, I listen to. I'm I'm down for Audible. If there's an Audible version, count yeah, me do Audible because <laughs> it's really cool because each chapter is kind of self contained, so you could like put it down after a chapter and come back, and you don't have to remember where you're at. Okay. I like that. uh, that's one and two is a hundred percent of the proceeds on the second book go to cancer care and research. So each one of the 15 book participants picked a charity that they like that they felt an affinity towards. And I promised them that a hundred percent of the proceeds that come in will go out to those charities. So there's not a ton of money in books and stuff, but, but it's pretty cool because we're able to support some good organizations. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, again, David, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And, and good luck to you this weekend. Oh. Hopefully uh, everything runs smoothly for you. There's no, It'll be smooth. 
no, no, uh, no, uh, flat tires or anything like that. Hopefully everything is nice and easy along the coastline. Oh my God. That's so funny that you said that. Don't jinx me. Cause the last <laughs> time that I did like, super quick, I'll be done. The last time that I did the Oceanside half at mile 55, you turn left off the freeway and then you go the last mile kind of through the village into the mm-hmm. T area. And I got a flat at mile 55. And I go, well, I might as well ride a flat in for the last mile. Cause the time it would take change right yeah but i'm riding it super slow and i all these people are like come on man you could do it you only got one more mile and i'm like that's really great that they're cheering for me but i'm I, I, i'm doing it like it's not me don't jinx me man no flat tires uh my fault i'll, I'll take it back i take it back <laughs> the trail life podcast is hosted produced and edited by me jeff stoner with music provided by the poor dirty astronauts with lyrics written by matt meyer you can rate review and subscribe to the trail life podcast on apple spotify amazon music or wherever you find your favorite podcast episodes thank you again everybody and we'll see you out on the trails real soon